0: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I'm live at the 2022 Wild Goose Festival, and I talk with Damon Garcia. Damon is a public theologian, writer, and video essayist. He is also the author of the recently released book, The God Who Riots Taking Back the Radical Jesus. You can get connected with Damon and his work in the links in the episode description. I also want to personally invite you to Theology Beer Camp this October 12th through the 15th, 2022 in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Theology Beer Camp is a time for you to meet some of your favorite theology podcasters, sip on your favorite beverages, and nerd out. You'll meet people like Pete Enns, Dr. Robin Henderson-Espinoza, Trip Fuller, and even me. And if you register with the link in the episode description and use the promo code APT, you can receive $50 off your ticket. Theology Beer Camp. Come thirsty, get nerdy. I hope to see you there. Well, uh, this is a people's theology. Uh, for those who are listening um, and are not at the Wild Goose Festival right now, that means, uh, well, actually, we. Everybody right now, as we're recording, is at the Wild Goose Festival. You may be listening to this and not be at the Wild Goose Festival. Um, but uh, yes, I am so excited to be doing this. Uh, I'm going to be having this great conversation with Damon Garcia. Uh, he's got a new book coming out called The God Who Riots, The Radical Je- Taking Back the Radical Jesus. Uh, it might be my favorite book of 2022. Whoa. I don't do like a top five list, but... I'm telling you, it's going to be in that top five list if I did a top Thank five list.
1: You. Thank you. Is it just because you have an endorsement on the back? Or the, you know, I class? will
0: say, if you look on the inside, there is a great endorsement by this <laughs> schmuck named Mason Menega. You should all check it out. Um, so we're going to have a conversation about his new book. Uh, so we'll get started. Uh, every time I do a podcast, I ask this very question. Okay. So you ready for it? I'm ready. For those who have maybe listened to my podcast before, you'll know what's coming up, but to introduce yourself, who is Damon Garcia to Damon Garcia?
1: Oh, man. Uh, who am I? I think I, I relate to my creativity, I think, the most out of all the qualities about me. I feel like like when people ask those kinds of questions of uh, you get up every day and you can do one thing, and for the rest of your life, it has to be like creating something. And so... Yeah, I, I think I'm a creator, I'm a Christian, um, I'm a leftist, so... Does that mean you're left-handed? All together. No, I just really don't like capitalism. Oh, okay. Even better. And would like socialism instead. Some people aren't willing to go... You see how that one got less class? Yeah, that's right. Some people aren't willing to do that next one. <laughs> and then after that, communism, so... Oh, there we go. There that's we the go. Class. Now we're back at it. Yeah. So I dig that. So, yeah, that's uh, I think the three things that take up my brain space the most is theology, communism and trap music. Oh, Playboy <laughs> Cardi, Young Thug. Any Young Thug fans in here? Yeah, oh. Free YSL. OK. That's uh, two, okay. pe- two people here. <laughs> <laughs> you, Wonderful. But yeah, that's a deep question.
0: Love it. Love Thank it. You. Well, I'm sure because this was your very first book, I'm sure there was so much you learned about yourself as a creator. Um, what did you learn about yourself as you wrote this book where you're like, whoa, I had no idea that I had that in me? What's something new that you didn't know about yourself?
1: Well, what was really cool ab- about writing this book, um, I yeah, I grew up in an evangelical church. Anybody grew up in a church like that, a conservative uh, church environment? Yeah, I, I actually grew up in a Pentecostal church environment that was started by a woman in the 1920s. So that was a huge deal. And it was awesome because our denomination emphasized things like women in ministry and that kind of egalitarian leadership structure. But they didn't want to go much further on a bunch of other topics like LGBTQ affirmation, um, different w- ways of interpreting the crucifixion, the afterlife, all that, as you I'm sure know. And what was interesting, I felt like they gave me the tools to grow. And then I just kept growing until I hit the ceiling and had to break free. And so that was, uh, it's been like maybe 11 years since I started that whole process. I thought I was going to be a minister in the evangelical church. I was a youth, working as a youth and young adults minister for a while, uh, about to get my pastoral license until I got to the point where I looked at all the questions they were going to ask me in the licensing interview. I was like, I can't lie. I'm not going to do this. And so that's when I had to go. And then uh, five years later, I wrote this book. But what's cool is like, what I love about this book is I get to finally be honest about all the really cool things I've been learning. I think like as we study theology, we get to a point where we discover something new and mind-blowing, and we have like two choices. Either choose honesty, now that we know a different truth, or loyalty to our old group, just so we could be safe. And I just kept choosing honesty to the point where uh, it led to a really difficult leaving of that environment, but now we're in a new environment. Now we're hanging out with Wild Goose, we're hanging out with Mason, and I think y'all will really enjoy this book. Lovely.
0: So, with the book all about Jesus, you have to dive into theology. Kind of a yeah. part of the deal. So, is there anything that you learned theologically in, like, as you were doing research or anything for the book that you're like, holy shit, I had no idea about this? Or is there anything about Christianity that you learned where you're like, holy shit, didn't know about that? Anything new uh, that you learned as you did some research for the book?
1: Yeah, I have a chapter in there called White Christianity All the Way Down because I wanted to be honest about the history of colonial Christianity and how it is the source of so much of the social divisions we're experiencing today. And, like, even the fact that when when the Spanish and the English and the French all colonized the Americas, whiteness didn't exist as a racial category yet. It was just, what uh, we're the Spanish, or we're the English. And then... As they continue to enslave and exploit black people and indigenous people and they eventually and and encourage them to convert, they eventually needed a new subcategory to keep them subjugated. And so they 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 did double cultural erasure. They erase the culture of those who are subjugating and they erased their own culture Mm -hmm. by saying yeah, I have this Spanish culture, but I'm really just white. Yeah, I have this English th- culture, but really we're just white, altogether white guys who are subjugating black people. Who So it's like the c- the category went from Christians and pagans to white and black, the same categorization that had to be updated in order to continue subjugating people. And so when I wrote that chapter, and it goes into a lot of that history, uh, it was, of course, very difficult to go through that, historic Christian violence but I I wanted to be fully honest though about that history so that in the next chapter called taking and reshaping Jesus I talk about the ways that colonized and marginalized Christians have reshaped the faith in order to empower them to struggle for freedom against their oppressors and so yeah I learned a lot about that history and it was difficult but uh it was worth it and I'm, I'm excited that I'm able to go that far in the book
0: So you've alluded just a bit ago about kind of your journey of really becoming honest with yourself about your theology, how you think about Jesus. Can you go a little bit more deeply about that personal journey of like how you've gotten to the point to understand Jesus as this radical person, this radical God, you know, however you would describe Mm. Jesus and his radicalness. But yeah, what's that like? What are some of those key moments in your personal journey that have led you to understand Jesus that way?
1: I think a lot of us grow up suspecting that Jesus was way more radical than what the people around us seem to let on and we get frustrated with the way Christians act, the way ministers act and it's like I think one of the first thoughts we have not only is this wrong the way that they're acting but also this is definitely not what Jesus would do <laughs> and you're constantly telling me do what Jesus would do, what would WWJD and it's like uh, yeah I don't think so and I think that's something that leads a lot of people out Of certain Christian environments not because they're rejecting Jesus but because they're following Jesus out of those specific churches a lot of Christians leave Christian communities for Christian reasons and so I always had that suspicion growing up that Jesus was definitely way more radical than this and then when I started to study like the the historical context of the Roman Empire first century judaism and the the political implications of the things jesus was saying i was like oh even way (laughs) more radical than i even thought this is Mm -hmm. this is mind-blowing stuff and i think one of the most interesting things about the story of jesus for me is the last week when he goes into the temple and flips tables pours out coins drives people out that's a classic story. Some of my friends actually didn't know that story. Even some friends that grew up in church, I was like, you didn't hear that story? That's like pretty big one. (laughs) And, uh, but even growing up in the church, I did, I heard the story, but it was always framed as, as a message of you can be angry sometimes if it's righteous anger, because here's a story of Jesus having righteous anger. And that was like the point of the story instead of like, considering all the political implications of what is happening in this political demonstration turned riot in the temple with property destruction looting and all and he says he uses the demonstration to say you've turned this place into a den of robbers and a den of robbers this is I think the the one of the most mind-blowing things that really inspired the book when I learned this a den of robbers is not where people are robbed it's where robbers go and hide to avoid the consequences and so essentially jesus is accusing the religious authorities of his day of turning the temple to a den of robbers and avoiding all the injustices going on in the world hiding behind their religion which is more relevant than ever because we all know christians who act like that yeah and so uh yeah jesus continues to inspire me as i theologically evolve and i'm i'm stoked that i got to write my whole first book about jesus (laughs)
0: no better way to start it's it's funny because i also grew up in that evangelical world and i think back to those days and like the way that i was told who jesus was and like looking back i'm like there's a like if that's who jesus actually was why the fuck did he ever get killed because that's like not radical enough to like actually be killed like there must be like there must be a radicalness to him that actually was a reason why the government was like
1: we actually have to get rid of this guy yeah I, I, there was one time I was interviewed by um, this super conservative radio show host, and he saw somewhere online that I said Jesus was poor and oppressed and is on the side of the poor and the oppressed. And then he asked me, where did you get the idea that Jesus was poor and oppressed? And I said, from the Bible? <laughs> he's, he's like, from where? I was like, from, like, reading it? Uh, <laughs> and then, And then he's like why do you think jesus was oppressed he wasn't oppressed and i was like he was literally killed (laughs) by the government he was definitely oppressed um but yeah i think a lot of people prefer a very strong jesus who is detached from the suffering of the world and and exhibiting strength through that but jesus was fully part of the suffering of the world and experienced it himself i think that's a way cooler understanding of jesus and way more biblical understanding of jesus
0: So when George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, I was living in Minneapolis at that time. And I remember, you know, a lot of people, especially people in Minneapolis, especially a lot of white people in Minneapolis, they're all about justice. But then as soon as the riots started happening, that's when they were like, all right, maybe we've gone a little too far. So I can imagine for a lot of people, they read this title, The God Who Riots, and they're immediately a little freaked out or a little nervous about that. So when you talk about rioting or riots and talking about specifically of, like, the God who riots, what do you mean by that? Like, what, what does rioting mean f- to you? What does God who riots mean to you? Yeah, I'm just kind of curious around those lines.
1: Well, I think of, um, yeah, when those protests were happening and there was that, uh, that night where they burned the 3rd Precinct, the whole building... Uh, in Minneapolis I remember seeing a live stream of that and remember like COVID had uh, started a few months before that and people weren't sure when it was going to end and people were dying and people weren't sure exactly how how, uh, fatal it was and people kept asking where is God in all this because this goes against a lot of understandings of God that uh, God would let this happen and uh, that night when I saw that live stream and saw that precinct burning and people dancing in front of it, uh, the first thing I thought was that's where God is. Mm. That's definitely where God is right now. Um, rioting through people. Because we see throughout history the way things change usually isn't because the people who are suffering convince the powerful to change things or, or just come up with a really great speech or really great influential campaign. That usually doesn't work it usually happens when the powerless can take power. Mm. Because the, the real problem is that power is often hoarded within the hands of the few. And people don't have the ability to create a better life for themselves or for their communities. Um, and I think when we see a moment when the powerless begin to unite, be in solidarity decide the kind of world that they want to build that happens the more pressure that they experience in the world Mm. so we see often a protest happens and then it's suppressed and then of course more protests happen and that happens with strikes that happens with marches that happens with movements the suppression makes people realize like oh yeah we actually do need to do something and we're seeing a lot of suppression of a lot of social movements right now. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, we're going to continue seeing people unite and stand up for justice and create a better world because I think when, when we think of like, what are the qualities of a better world we want? How do we figure that out? I think we first need to listen to those who most experience the constraints of this current world and the way that it's structured. Because mm. they know way more <laughs> than people who experience less of those constraints. And so I see what Jesus was doing seems very similar when he go he stages this political demonstration and the crowds there are protecting him. Like it says they couldn't arrest him because of the crowds. Like that was all planned out, making sure he doesn't get arrested. And then every night every evening they go through the Mount of Olives to Bethany to avoid getting arrested and then back the next morning until eventually they figure out they're going through the Mount of Olives. And I see, um, I think what's super interesting too is the differences in the gospel accounts of this because Mark written first has the most like brief version of this story and then Matthew adds a detail that all of the sick and disabled rushed into the temple and he began healing them in the temple which is a beautiful image. Because that's who Jesus was listening to. That's who Jesus was in relationship with. And he showed that to the religious authorities that this is the work. And, um, yeah, and then the other Gospels add different details, too. But John puts it in front. It's like, this, this is so important. Let's put this story <laughs> at the beginning of the Gospel. Um, so, yeah, that's why I think we got to pay attention to that stuff. So I grew
0: up, again, evangelical. You did, too. We were raised thinking that salvation means, like, you're getting saved from hell uh, by Jesus. Mm -hmm. So that's the only reason why salvation is a thing, is that you are being saved from hell. But you go way beyond that and actually talk about what you really think salvation means. So can you talk a little bit about how you talk about salvation in the beginning of the book?
1: Yeah, the first chapter is called Saved From What? Because... Because when I was a little kid, I remember there was this uh, kid who was mean to me at school, and I saw him at kids' church, and I was shocked. I was like, this is, this is the mean kid. What is he doing at church? And uh, then they, they asked us, like, that classic question, who wants to accept Jesus or something like that? And he raised his hand, and I was really shocked. But I was also excited because I felt like, well, he's probably going to be nice to us now. Now he's <laughs> becoming a Christian. <laughs> and, uh so the next day, I was super excited. I told my friends in PE on the blacktop. I said, Richard got saved last night. And then they said, saved from what? <laughs> I was stumped. I, was, I had no idea what to say. <laughs> I thought everybody knew what that meant. Um, but what I think is super interesting is even as a child, I understood that salvation had a big part to do with, or what salvation looked like was transformation. Mm. Is that when people would choose to live a Christian life it meant that they would live in the world differently. Mm. And I think I g- got part of that from seeing my parents, my parents are going to church when I was two years old and they had like a big revelation and wanted to leave some of their past coping mechanisms and uh, addictions and they were transformed. But the thing is they also had a community of people who wanted to aid in their transformation. And over time, I realized more and more that that played a huge part. I think as a kid, I was like, well, yeah, that's what Jesus says. And then over time, I was like, they needed that community. And that was a huge part of how they're able to transform. And then when we look in the Bible about the ways that salvation or saved or Savior is used, we see it's usually in reference to communal Mm -hmm, salvation, mm -hmm. a, a group of people being saved together, being liberated together. We see that with saving the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and then crying out for salvation again in Babylon. And then the first Christians talk about having this heart transformation so that there could be um, a material transformation. And so it's always got to be both the heart transformation, the inner transformation, and the material outside together transforming the world too.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say is, like, one of the key parts of your book is, you know, especially in spaces like Wild Goose, we want to talk about, like, salvation as, like, this collective liberation, that it's, yeah. it's communal, but also you're not wanting to forget the fact that there's, like, this personal transformation that happens when we follow Jesus, or at least it should yeah. happen, and, and maybe that's our evangelical days speaking, <laughs> but, like, you really want to, like, keep that to be a core part of what transformation means, that it's not simply communal and collective,
1: but the personal is really a part of it. Yeah at this point i'm not sure what happens at a soul level but i feel like that's god's business probably none of mine god's taking care of that i I don't have to do anything to make sure my soul is properly taken care of in like a a metaphysical sense um i just have what's in front of me and the ways that i can respond to what's in front of me based on the transformation that i experience um But yeah, I I get uncomfortable when people seem to have like a super clear idea of the exact things that happen when we're saved and what happens to our soul and then what happens to it when we die. It's like we don't know that. And that's probably none of our business. In the middle of the book,
0: you also kind of go in depth about the way that Christianity has been used to colonize people all across the world. Uh, But then you also talk about the Christianity that has liberated people all across the world and the way that they've used Christianity to be kind of the catalyst for their liberation as their uh, motivation to, to be liberated. So it seems like we have like really two different christianities going on here and so i'm just curious like how should we think through as christians like how should we think through the fact that christianity has been used to colonize and oppress but also is the same exact religion that people are using to liberate themselves as well like are they just entirely two different christianities are they the same faith like i'm just like how should we think through this really really peculiar dynamic that's going on there
1: yeah I've thought a lot about it, too, um, as a Mexican-American and thinking about the ways that the Spanish colonized Latin America. And it's, uh, yeah, if you get into the details, it very much feels like, oh, yeah, I am I have to admit, a, a major reason I'm a Christian is the result of colonization. Mm. Like, I have to be honest about that first. But then I look at the ways that, the colonized have reinterpreted the faith and reshaped the faith. And when they do, it's often interpreted as like some new twisting. But what we often see is that they're going back to the root of who Jesus was, what the Bible actually says. Like what we see, um, I think an example gets talked about a lot is slavery in the United States, how you had like Frederick Douglass, Nat Turner, empowered by the Bible and showing like. This is about a God who frees the slaves. Mm. This God that you forced us to convert to is actually on our side, not on your side. And we see that with uh, uh, Latin Americans. How I, th- I think one of the most inspiring things for me to find out was about the ways that the Virgin of Guadalupe evolved within mm. the tradition and how initially it was a pale-skinned version, and it was great to get people to... Stop paying attention to the indigenous goddesses and just like just t- just pay attention to this. It has miracles, I promise. But then over time, as they kept depicting this image, the skin got darker and darker and darker. Mm. And during multiple revolutions, they had an image of the dark-skinned Virgin Mary on them. Like uh, Miguel Hidalgo said, uh, "Long live the Virgin Mary and death to the Spaniards." before that war started so it's like what what do we do with that we can't say like oh well this is how it originated this is how they even received the tradition of the virgin mary so it's let's it's bad and just inherently evil but then we see how they reshaped it and Mm -hmm. reinterpreted it and even see like oh yeah that's also getting back in touch with the mary of the magnificat it was like bring bringing down the powerful from their thrones lifting up the lowly sending the rich away empty filling the hungry it's like oh yeah this is way more biblical Th- right. don't confuse it for like a twisting and then we see as christianity evolves it's often in response to that kind of thing to colonize right. and marginalize christians reshaping the faith to the point where everything and everyone has to change it, it honestly it reminds
0: me of the way that jesus interacted with his own religion of the day where yeah. like he recognized okay this, is th- th- this religion clearly is being used to harm people, even maybe even oppress people, and yet he remained a Jew and died a Jew his whole life. So he t- clearly thought that even within his own religion, there was something there that can be of liberation, and there's a reason why he never left Judaism at any mm-hmm. point in his life. Um, And so it's interesting, like, the same dynamic that you see Jesus experiencing in his life is the same dynamic that's playing out with Christianity, that in a lot of ways it's used to colonize and harm and hurt and oppress, but also it can be the same exact religion that that liberates people as well. Yeah. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. In the middle of the book, you also talk about the thing that Jesus talked about the most, which is the kingdom of God or the reign of God, as you kind of mentioned. What is the reign of God? And like, how? And the other thing you talk about with the reign of God is that like, this is not something that we're like longing for in some future. But it actually is, like, happening here and now. So, like, what are the ways that we actually are seeing the reign of God happening here and now?
1: Hmm. I like uh, the way that John Dominic Crossan describes the kingdom of God as what the world would look like if God was directly and immediately in charge. And so it's not about another realm someplace else or sometime else, but about making this world match what we know that the God of the exodus the god of jesus would actually want and it's interesting to see how jesus told people things like the kingdom of god is within you the kingdom of god is at hand and compared it with a mustard seed that grows mm-hmm. a leave bread that grows and so it seems to be something that we catch the vision of and then materialize in our everyday reality and and that's really important because I think we get, get caught up with our spiritual beliefs of we're all one. We're united. There's actually no uh, disconnect. It's all all the divisions we have are all lies. But that may be comforting, but w- then we need to actualize how we actually know uh, the world works, that we are we are actually connected, and we all are equally deserving of love and justice. So now let's actualize that. And so I think that's what Jesus was wanting people to do. And Jesus was not a reformist. He definitely wasn't talking about the ways that Roman politicians can just implement better policies so right, that right. things could be better. Uh, <laughs> Jesus definitely wasn't like, you turn this place to a den of Jesus robbers wasn't a neoliberal? and vote. Yeah, he was never like, <laughs> den of robbers. But it wouldn't have been a den of robbers if you didn't vote or whatever. But – uh Jesus instead. Stay in line. Stay in line. Yeah. J- Jesus instead <laughs> seems to, uh, like several Jews of the time, fully believe that God planned on destroying the Roman Empire. Like, this is all going to come down for sure. Now let's talk about how we live after that. Mm. That seemed to be what Jesus was interested in talking about, the type of lives and communities we live in um, post the destruction of our oppressive systems and so we need to catch that vision in order to get there.
0: I remember again when I was in Minneapolis during all the protests and the night literally like hours before the precinct was burned down I went to that place in Minneapolis and there's a target right next to there that had been looted and people were taking good you know food diapers those sorts of things and all of that at right where the precinct was, was being redistributed to people who needed it. And that's, I think that's the thing about the kingdom of God or the reign of God is it sometimes happens in the most unexpected places. I went there not thinking that that was where I thought or that I went there not realizing that that's actually the moment where I would really tangibly experience the reign of God. And I get there and I'm like, holy shit, that's, that's it. Like, that's what (laughs) Jesus is talking about is like they, These oppressive systems, um, you know, capitalist corporations like Target, they have no power in the moment like that. And, like, all the things that they've been using, you know, all the food, all the diapers, all the things that people need that they've been hoarding, now the people have. And they're actually able to make it another day. And that was, like, the moment where I'm like, I think this is the reign of God. Like, if, if there's anything that Jesus was talking about with the reign of God, it's a moment like that.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's good.
0: So... In the middle of the book or towards the end of the book, you also talk about abolition. I got my abolition shirt on today what and does it, uh, say? it, uh, it says "This little light of mine will burn down prisons." There we go. Uh, so you talk a little bit about abolition and I think a lot of people when they think of like prison abolition or police abolition, they immediately think you're just trying to destroy things. But I don't think that's the case at all when it comes to abolition. It's actually just creating a new reality in a way, like at least for us, for Christians, we could say it is us actually participating in creating that reign of God in our world. Um, So can you talk a little bit about like what abolition means to you, how you write about it in the book um, and how abolition actually is a way to create the kind of world that we want, not destroying a world that we don't.
1: Yeah. I think abolition of the prison industrial complex, which includes prisons, police and surveillance is difficult to talk about because of our significant lack of imagination like when that conversation gets brought up one of the first questions is that gets asked is well what if something happens and we need the police to come and help but i think a better question is why don't we have better resources for our communities to better help us and even to prevent crime because police don't according to the data, don't prevent crime. It's, I mean, it's there's an obvious element to it. It's like, well, yeah, they're always responding to it because they get called after. But also we see in heavily policed areas that crime continues. And one of the uh, data points that we see that does affect crime and lowers crime is when people get the resources they need. Poverty, at times, creates a high crime rate. And so what I find really interesting is when Jesus talked about the reign of God and said, the last will be first and the first will be last. We all know Jesus definitely isn't about the hierarchies we have in society, but Jesus also wants to see things flipped and wants to, um, and, and I think to actualize that reign of God in the world, that means standing against the systems that keep us, divided in a way where the low stay where they're at, the last stay the last, the first stay the first. And we see the prison industrial complex often serve that role in society, keeping the first, keeping Mm -hmm. the rich, keeping the owners where they're at, and keeping poor and marginalized communities heavily policed or imprisoned. And if we believe in the reign of God that we're supposed to be actualizing a world where the first are last and the last are first, then that's the prison industrial complex is antithetical mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the reign of God. And so, yeah, it's, it's a tough conversation, but like I said, we need a better imagination. And so, yeah, I'm glad we're all talking about it.
0: Yeah, it seems like when when people just resort to, well, we need the police or we need prisons, it just simply is the fact that they can't imagine a world without punishment and that there actually is a better way to live in the world and we actually can create systems to make that happen but it takes a lot of courage, and it takes a lot of work, but, like, I think you're one of those people that really is, like, making some of that happen in the world, and, it, but it's going to take all of us.
1: Definitely. Yeah.
0: Um, A couple more questions, and we'll yeah. open, or one more question, and we'll open it up to you all, if you have any questions, but how do you hope this book inspires and liberates its, rea- its readers?
1: I, um, it seems like, yeah, we're looking around, the world's falling apart, Anti-trans bills being passed, other anti-LGBTQ bills being proposed, um, restriction of abortion, continual white supremacy. I mean, I could just go on and on and on, but I think it's good that we acknowledge that. I think some people are, are worried that if we talk too much about the bad, then we'll be hopeless and pessimistic, but we need to be honest. But I love what uh, the abolitionist scholar Mariam Kaba says. mm, Some of you may have heard this too. Do not let this lead you to despair, but let it radicalize you. Mm. And part of that radicalization is fully accepting the ways that the world is falling apart and then imagining something else and listening to the voices that experience the constraints of this world the most and allowing them to lead that radical imagination and listening where we're going and yeah so i'm i'm hoping for my book to be a part of that further radicalization that i think we're all experiencing Mm -hmm. every day as we look at the world and so i think yeah this book will definitely help people articulate some of that that they're they're experiencing in their radicalization and show them a a few steps to go from here
0: it it certainly was that case for me um again while i was in minneapolis I, i you know i Probably would have been a person that was in support of something like abolition or some sort of reform for the police. But it really, that event of George Floyd being killed and those protests really did radicalize me in that way. And I'm really hoping that there's a whole generation, a whole group of people that that's exactly what they're experiencing in the world where these events, they can no longer remain the same. They can't remain neutral. They have to actually take a side in, in moments like that. And so that's what I'm hopeful for. All right. Well, we have a couple minutes, uh, for questions. And so, um, I, we got one there already. We got one there already.
1: Perfect. All right. Before, before we go, by the way, my book is available in the bookstore over there. It actually comes out August 23rd. So y'all are getting it real early. I, I, touched my real book for the first time here at Wild Goose. <laughs> I didn't even get it in the mail. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And so, yeah, there's copies in, over there. And I have a session tomorrow at the forum at 5 p.m. if you'd like to go to that. So now we can ask questions. Thank you very much. Uh, you have clearly taken a very deep dive into the Jesus of the first century and the history and the culture. And so after we read your book, which we're going to do, we want to know, you know, where did you get this? Where did you learn this? Where could we go further to deep dive ourselves? I think a uh, good introduction to like uh, historical Jesus studies, if you're just starting to study that, is John Dominic Crossan's book, Jesus, a Revolutionary Biography. I think, that th- yeah, that was a great introduction. But the book that I d- was really inspired by while, while I was writing this. Um, which is a bit more dense, is called Jesus and the Spiral of Violence by Richard Horsley. And I found it extremely fascinating because I think it it really changes how we see Jesus when we understand the context of the revolts happening, the Jewish revolts. Like Jesus' ministry takes place between these two giant revolts, 1 in 4 BC, I believe, and 70 CE. And, and then when we see the things he's saying, the things that other people are saying to him, how they're reacting to him, it, it, there's a whole new light shown on it when we could see it in that context between these two major revolts and how people are scared of Roman suppression once again, and Jesus even being careful with the words he's using because of that. And so, yeah, that, that was a, I really, really liked that. And I liked the way, like, it talked about the complex uh, topic of violence and different forms of violence and all that. Yeah, great. I think there was a question back there.
2: Hi, <coughs> hi. Thanks. Um, so my my question is is a little peripheral. Per- peripheral. Um, are you familiar with the Ni Una Mo- Menos uh, movement in Latin America? Now, the I don't think so. It's so a fem- feminist uh, movement uh, in Latin America um, that's that's been sort of percolating over the last decade or so um they it's and it's all based it's organized around ending violence against women um in i think the end of 2020 like a massive protest outside of the capital in buenos aires uh was sort of like the impetus for um the the uh the legislature to overturn the abortion ban in in argentina after many years um and and they and the, the 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 movement goes on um, I think they've, they've had some, some effect uh, all over, uh, I think in Mexico as well, uh, regarding the, or- the abortion ban there. Um, but I, I was wondering what sort of, uh, what sort of lessons would you, would you imagine like a feminist, a feminist led, uh, revolution has, or, or, uh, activism has for, um, uh, Christian activists in, in the United States? Hmm.
1: So, that's so interesting. Uh, hearing you say th- uh, the term Christian activist, that can mean so many things. That could be something really scary, but also <laughs> <laughs> really cool. Uh, so, uh, but I, I also think like there's a lot of, I think w- we're all very familiar with this, the, the types of Christian leaders that see a need in the community and feel like, okay, we need to start the program that helps them, instead of considering all the other programs and organizations in the community that are already doing it, that they could aid, and help fund, and even give places to meet, and all that, and um, yeah, at this point, yeah, I would just like to see less churches starting things, I want them to, like, look at that, um, those who are in that community, to look at the ways that they're leading that, and follow suit and let them lead the way and provide funding and space and yeah I wish I could see more and more of that because um, yeah that's that's part of the reign of God absolutely we have time for a couple more any other questions
0: don't be a Minnesotan who's too polite oh got another I'm probably
2: being polite okay
0: so you talked about with our evangelical roots, how we're not
1: looking anymore to be saved onto some afterworld, but we're being saved in, into something else. And we stop, stumble there, right, for a moment. Mm. And so what it is, it does seem to me that we're, what we're being saved, not from something, but saved into
0: something, into a relationship with God, who's present in this world at this time, doing things now, breaking in from the future and developing our new future. There's a, God as part of the new idea. And... So my I guess my question is, is say, wh- where do you see this radical Jesus breaking in a new idea? What is a new idea that radical Jesus brings together for us that lets us wh- what could we live into? Mm. Well, it sounds cool. like there's one going on in Latin America right now. Yeah.
1: The hat and uh, also the word radical, the root word is radix, which means roots. So often it's not even about something brand new but about getting back to the roots of something and what i also love about the story of jesus is that he's often repeating what hebrew prophets were already saying and doing his whole demonstration in the temple was already done centuries before him by jeremiah and that whole quote about you turn my father's house to a den of robbers was taken from jeremiah and jeremiah was also about to get killed after his temple demonstration but he just got away and then was killed later but (laughs) that's uh I, i i think it's so much more interesting when we see jesus in that context and so i think uh a big thing is i think being more knowledgeable of the history of these different revolutions and social movements and seeing how things change understanding that we don't have to come to these problems with a completely blank slate of what do we do let's pull out a blank piece of paper and come up with ideas we can study the history of the ways that changes were made and the ways that it's happening around the world and yeah i would like to see more of that and and yeah i agree that yeah we are absolutely being saved into something and it's um how was i gonna say oh yeah the whole book of acts the first christian evangelists going around uh, i mean yeah preaching and then a lot of those passages ends with and so and so was saved none of them said anything about the afterlife that was like about welcoming them into a community where they took care of each other uh, made sure everybody had food had a place to stay all the sick were taken care of and shared property And then it says, and they were saved. Like, that's like a totally different way of understanding salvation. So, yeah, I would definitely like to see more of that among Christians today. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Any last questions? We got one last one over here.
1: So, um, a lot of uh, liberal and progressive theology is often... um, I find a, a theology that's very like anti-war, anti-military, is pacifist uh, in its nature. So, how do you deal with this intersection of pacifism and a God who riots? Mm. Hmm. Thank you. Um, yeah, Jesus. When we when we look at the text and consider his context, Jesus wasn't violent. He was not calling for violence. But I really don't think we should look at it as Jesus was nonviolent either because Jesus wasn't condemning and I think that's also what's super interesting about seeing him in the context of the other revolts. He didn't condemn any of those revolts. He didn't say that was wrong and we're going to do it the right way nonviolently. He understood why those things were happening and like I said he was more concerned with teaching about how to live post that kind of um revolt or God ordained destruction. And so I think um I think because it's it's really difficult because Jesus was convinced that God would destroy the Roman Empire, he doesn't have much to say about like <laughs> violence or nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's something that um we have to first of all acknowledge the huge difference between violence in the form of oppression and then we see violence and revolt, counter-violence, in order to be free from oppression. And then we see another form of violence, which is suppression of those movements. And that's the cycle. That's what Richard Horsley talks about in the Spiral of Violence, and, and other people have talked about. But um, that spiral of violence must be paid attention to very carefully to see the different forms of violence. And we must not say, well, it's all the same violence, and it's all the same behavior, and it's all wrong." Because that, I think, aids in the further suppression of the movements that are trying to free themselves. And so I think it's definitely complex and must be understood in a situation-by-situation thing. But, um, yeah, it's good to talk about.
0: Thank you. Last question. How can people who are listening to the podcast or people here at Wild Goose, how can they get connected to your work? Where can they find the book? Uh, Yeah, how can people get connected to you?
1: Yeah. Damon Garcia dot com. And then I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at who is Damon because my last name is Garcia. So every Garcia name is taken on every social media. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> so who is Damon? And yeah, I would love it if you follow me. Um, I'll, I'll talk to you all uh, that are here in the moment. Anyone's listening, though, uh, hit me up in my messages and say, hey, I heard you on Mason's podcast. And yeah, and check out my book, The God Who Riots, available everywhere including wild goose let's go love it love
0: it well thank you so much damon uh you are somebody who over these last several years i've just been so inspired i've learned so much from you and so i'm so excited that this book now is almost out to the world it's out to the wild goose world but it's going to be out to the entire world here very soon and thank you so much for talking a little bit more about it thank you